Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 113. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so great to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. June's prize is a copy of Peter Ackroyd's Tudors, sponsored by the FreelanceHistoryWriter.com. Do check out this amazing blog. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show for part two of our discussion about the life of Nicholas Hilliard is Dr. Elizabeth Goldring. Elizabeth was born in Washington, D.C., and received her MA, MPhil, and PhD from Yale University. She's lived in the UK for the past 25 years. An honorary reader at the University of Warwick Centre for the Study of the Renaissance and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, Dr Goldring has published widely on 16th and 17th century court culture. Her work is interdisciplinary, often straddling the boundaries between literature, history and art history. Dr. Goldring's latest book is Nicholas Hilliard, Life of an Artist, which won the Apollo Magazine's Art Book of the Year Award. In addition, Hilliard was shortlisted for three other major awards. She's currently working on a new book on Hans Holbein the Younger and the Court of Henry VIII. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me back for part two. Yes, I've been really looking forward to this. Now, I just thought because, you know, people find the podcast each week, it would be great if you could just reintroduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background. Of course. My name is Elizabeth Goldring. I'm an honorary reader at the University of Warwick Centre for the Study of the Renaissance. I work on Tudor court culture. I'm particularly interested in the intersection between the art, the literature, the religion and the politics of the age. My most recent book, which is the reason we're here today, is a biography of Nicholas Hilliard, which seeks to put Hilliard's life and art in the broadest possible context, religious, political, cultural. And I was also very keen in writing this book to try to use Hilliard's life as a lens through which to look at larger developments. He was born at the tail end of Henry VIII's reign, lived well into James I's. And so it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to talk about not just religious upheaval in England, um, and he was an eyewitness to some fairly dramatic um, moments in, in English history, but also to talk about larger changes in the status of painting and the painter. When Hilliard was born, painting in England was, for the most part, seen as a pretty lowly pursuit. There wasn't the concept of a fine art painter, to use a modern term. Um, by the time Hilliard dies in 1619, that has all changed, and in large part due to Hilliard himself. And so I thought that was an interesting story to tell as well, not just the story of Hilliard's own life, but the story of this kind of larger transformation in English attitudes towards painting and the painter. Yes, and it's an exceptional book. I love it. I keep recommending it to anyone. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's really nice to hear. Now, in part one, Elizabeth, of our conversation, which was episode 108, in case any of our listeners haven't heard that yet, we focused on Nicholas Hilliard's early life and ended our chat around the time that he finished his apprenticeship in the summer of 1569 and subsequently opened his own workshop. So today we're going to pick up from around this point and talk about his flourishing career at court and his later years as well. So let's begin by touching on Hilliard's workshop in the early 1570s. So less than a year after his own apprenticeship ended, he took on his own apprentices. So why was this so remarkable? And do we know anything about the men he employed? Sure, very good questions. Well, the reason it was remarkable is that the rules and regulations of the London Goldsmiths Company, which was the Guild of, of Goldsmiths, stipulated that a newly qualified goldsmith needed to wait a minimum of three years before taking on his first apprentice. So the idea was that during that three-year period, a newly qualified goldsmith would be a journeyman in someone else's workshop. And effectively acquire even more training than he had acquired as an apprentice. It was sort of a bonus period um, where you're higher than an apprentice, but not yet considered quite sufficiently uh, skilled and knowledgeable to manage and run your own workshop and train your own apprentices. There was, however, a loophole in the rules which gave the wardens of the company discretion in cases of exceptional ability to permit a newly qualified Goldsmith to take on an apprentice before the three-year mark. And so clearly Hilliard was recognized from the outset as someone special um, because we know from documents preserved at Goldsmith's Hall that he did actually have permission to bend the rules on this occasion. On many, many later occasions, he broke the rules without the permission of the wardens and was often locking horns with them. But at least on this occasion, we know that he, he did this with the blessing of the company. 
At various points in the early 1570s, he had two or sometimes three apprentices simultaneously. And this also is quite remarkable because, again, the rules and regulations stated that only the most senior members of the company could have more than one apprentice at a time. So again, Hilliard from the outset seems to have been viewed as exceptional and allowed to do things his own way, um, which I think probably did not always endear him to his contemporaries. Certainly uh, friction with his fellow goldsmiths who were roughly the same age and roughly the same vintage would be a recurring uh, motif throughout his throughout his career but anyway clearly he was seen as someone who was particularly talented from the outset it may also have helped that he had patrons in high places from the outset certainly in later years Hilliard was not shy when he and the wardens of the company were at loggerheads about calling in favors from his powerful patrons. So it may be that he learned to do this from from quite an early stage. The wardens, if they received a letter from a leading courtier, almost always gave in and did whatever it was suggested that they do. So certainly in eight years, that was a trick that Hilliard had up his sleeve whenever he got backed into a corner. In terms of the composition of the workshop, interestingly, quite a few of the young men were recent emigres to England who had fled the continent seeking religious refuge and the freedom to practice worship as Protestants. So in this respect, Hilliard in many ways, consciously or not, emulated what his own father had done in Exeter. We we talked a bit in part one about Richard Hilliard's workshop in Exeter and how he was a very ardent Protestant and he had an apprentice who was a um, a Fleming who had fled uh, Catholic persecution on the continent. And so Nicholas, in setting up his own workshop in London some years later, seems in many ways to have also either looked to recruit or simply was seen as sympathetic to those who were very, very committed to the Protestant cause. And so Hilliard, obviously, he didn't just work with miniatures. I know today we kind of, the minute you say Nicholas Hilliard, we're all picturing miniatures. But of course, he worked in a wide range of media and pretty quickly, as you've said, found himself in high demand with, you know, some very important patrons. So could you tell us a little bit about some of these important people that commissioned work from him and maybe describe some of the commissions as well? Sure. I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, we hear Hilliard's name today and we tend to think miniatures. And that's not completely um, wide of the mark because in his own lifetime, it was for his miniatures that he was most celebrated. And it's also the case that of all the types of work that he produced, it's the miniatures that survive in the greatest numbers. However, day to day, he really had his fingers in a lot of pies and was producing an extraordinarily wide range of um, works in a variety of media. So he also produced paintings in great. He did designs for jewellery, designs for medals, and obviously both of those are... um, you know, the types of commissions that would have required that he liaise with fellow goldsmiths. Um, He did designs for woodcut title page borders, so would have been collaborating with engravers, woodcutters, book printers, and booksellers. Without doubt, his most significant early patron was Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, who was, of course, Queen Elizabeth's favourite. It's not entirely clear how Dudley first became aware of Hilliard, but I suspect that it was via Robert Brandon, the royal goldsmith, to whom Hilliard had been apprenticed in the 1560s. Brandon, in addition to being a goldsmith, would have had a sideline as a moneylender. He was fantastically rich. And Dudley was forever juggling um, cash flow issues and always looking to borrow money from someone. So 
Brandon regularly helped Studley with his cash flow problems. Studley was a great patron and collector and Brandon no doubt knew this. Um, so I think it's entirely possible that at some point in conversation it came up that Brandon had a, a gifted apprentice who was branching out from goldsmithery into um, miniature painting. But in any case, however Dudley first came to know of Hilliard, it's clear from documentary sources that by late 1570, early 1571, so you know a year or so after Hilliard gained his freedom um, as a goldsmith, Dudley was commissioning jewellery from Hilliard and also um, in the spring of 1571 sat to him for a miniature, which Dudley then sent as a gift to Catherine de' Medici. Dudley and the French Queen Mother regularly exchanged letters and paintings. And so Dudley sent off this miniature to Catherine de' Medici in late spring 1571. She was delighted with it. And this would have been um, an unusual response from Catherine, who was normally quite sniffy about the quality of paintings emanating from the English court and was always quite keen to point out that everything she was sending was rather more sophisticated. So once Hilliard had... Dudley's patronage, many other doors opened. Catherine de Medici suddenly was aware of who Hilliard was and it wouldn't be long before Queen Elizabeth and others at the English court were aware as well. So just a couple of things, just on when you said painting in great, Elizabeth, can you clarify what you meant by that? Yes, of course. So um, large scale oil paintings, the kind of painting that is meant to hang on the wall in a long gallery, often life size, though not necessarily quite that big. But, you know, really the opposite in a sense to a miniature, whereas a miniature is meant to be held in the hand. It's a very private, personal, intimate image, possibly intended only for the eyes of the recipient. The painting in great is oil on panel or sometimes in this period canvas, but wood was the more common surface to use, would have hung in a big gallery and it would have been intended to be seen by a much wider audience. And we often, I think, have tended to think of painting in great and painting in miniature as very separate spheres, but increasingly it's clear that most painters in this period did both. And, you know, typically one was was perhaps more naturally gifted than the other. And I think in Hilliard's case, uh, miniature painting was, you know, really his calling. Um, The documentary sources that survive in relation to Hilliard's work as a large-scale oil painter suggest that that yes, he wasn't quite as exceptional in that in that regard as he was in, in miniature painting, but he certainly did work um, in great. I mean, I think the reality is that um, Hilliard, like most artists in this period, turned their hand to whatever would pay the bills. The reality of day-to-day life was that anything that brought in money was, from their point of view, worth doing. And uh, the going rate at Queen Elizabeth's court for most of her reign for a miniature was about £3. That's minus a bejeweled setting, obviously. The setting would be extra and potentially the cost of um, a setting, well, the sky was the limit, depending on what sort of jewels you wanted to put in it. An oil painting in great was £5. So from Hilliard's point of view, there was certainly a financial incentive if people wanted large scale oil paintings to um, to produce them. Thank you. And we're going to touch more on Hilliard's financial or precarious financial situation, I should say, a little bit later. But that's really great. And I, I must say, I smiled when I was reading in your book about Catherine de' Medici's um, observations of the paintings coming out of England. It was quite, quite humorous. And I was always picturing Elizabeth just not being impressed by that. Yes, in many 
funny how um, the paintings were very much used as a, a sort of one-upsmanship between courts. And yes, it, it, was, it was all highly, highly competitive. And having a good court painter was absolutely crucial in terms of maintaining your image and um, not letting the side down in relation to uh, other courts. Yes, really interesting. So in terms of Hilliard's rise at court, is it Dudley that really introduces him to other people there, do you think? And is that why he first catches Elizabeth's eye? Do you think it was Dudley that introduced him to Elizabeth? Yes, it, it definitely was Dudley that introduced him to Elizabeth. Um, that was one of the really exciting discoveries that I made when working on the book. I was able to piece together clues from disparate documentary sources to reconstruct the circumstances of the occasion when Elizabeth first sat to Hilliard for a miniature. And in fact, this followed directly on from the episode I mentioned a moment ago when Dudley sent a miniature of himself by Hilliard to Catherine de' Medici. Because Catherine was so excited by that particular image, in writing back to Dudley to thank him for it, she said, could you get Queen Elizabeth to sit for one in the same manner? And so Dudley swiftly set about organizing that. And we know that the sitting took place in a garden at Hampton Court Palace in the summer of 1571. In fact, I was able to narrow it to a pretty specific window of about two, two and a half weeks in the July of 1571. Unfortunately, that miniature does not survive, which is a real shame, but we know that it was completed. We know that it was sent to Catherine. She received it. She was delighted with it. And no doubt Elizabeth would have been delighted to finally have had an image that elicited a positive response from Catherine de' Medici. They had been exchanging portraits of each other for years and years and years. And picking up on, on, on the point you just made a few moments ago, Catherine was always quite snide about um, the images coming to her depicting Elizabeth. And so I'm sure once Elizabeth realized that she had a good painter at her disposal in England, she didn't want to lose this particular talent because she'd never had such positive response before to um, a portrait that she had sent to a foreign court. So yes, and of course, once Hilliard had the Queen's stamp of approval and the stamp of approval of her very powerful, influential favorite, of course, others at court wanted to follow suit. I mean, what Dudley and Elizabeth did was almost by definition fashionable. So of course, then others would follow suit. And we don't always know the identities of Hilliard's early sitters. There are about 14 extant miniatures from the period spanning the years 1571 to mid-1576, when Hilliard actually leaves England for a while and goes to France. And most of those sitters can't actually be identified, but it's clear from their clothing and their dress that they were almost exclusively drawn from courtly circles. Interestingly, so far as can be determined, the only patron sitters during this early period who sat to Hilliard more than once were Dudley and Elizabeth. There are two extant miniatures of Elizabeth from this early period, 1571 to 76, and three of Dudley from that same window, um, though we know from documentary sources that both Dudley and Elizabeth sat for other portraits by Hilliard during those years that, that haven't survived, such as, for example, the one we just mentioned that was painted of Elizabeth at Catherine de' Medici's request. Yes, clearly Dudley and Elizabeth really embraced Hilliard as an image maker and where they led 
others followed. And there, then over time, over the decades, is a gradual trickle down from courtly circles to more um, self-made middle class circles. So by the late 1580s, 1590s and into the early 17th century, you get quite a lot of self-made men in the city commissioning portraits of themselves and of their wives and daughters. But three pounds, which, as I mentioned, was the going rate for a Hilliard miniature before it had been framed, was a lot of money. I mean, you didn't necessarily have to be born with a title, of course, but you certainly had to be very rich. Three pounds was more than an architect in Chester earned in an entire year in the 1590s. So a significant amount of cash. So I just want to go back and just touch on those large scale portraits again. It's sure. you know, quite quite tragic that it's so many, so much of his work obviously doesn't survive. But do any of these larger scale portraits survive? And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about those. Sure. Um, this is actually a fascinating topic. We've known from documentary evidence for a very long time that Hilliard painted in great, but until relatively recently, there was no consensus at all as to whether or not any extant paintings could plausibly be linked to him and his workshop. But in the last 10 years or so, advances in the scientific and technical analysis of paintings has come on by leaps and bounds in ways that have made it possible to quantify more precisely how particular paintings might relate to Hilliard and his workshop. So for example, there is a pair of large-scale paintings now in the Rothschild collection at Wadston Manor, which depict Queen Elizabeth and Sir Amias Paulet, who was her ambassador to France in the 1570s. And these paintings, it's now, I think, very, very clear, were executed by Hilliard during a period he spent living in France, which coincided with Paulet's tenure as ambassador to France. Paulet, no doubt, would have sat to Hilliard. They were both in Paris at the same time. Queen Elizabeth, of course, was not in France. So Hilliard could not have portrayed her from the life. But what's very interesting is that the face of the Queen in this large-scale oil painting is very clearly adapted from an image of the Queen that Hilliard had painted in miniature back in 1572, and which no doubt was painted from the life. So clearly Hilliard having created a template of the Queen's face in miniature, then was able some years later and on the other side of the channel to work it up and adapt it into a painting in great. He may have had help on both of those portraits with the background, both the Queen and Amias Pollitt are shown against red curtains, which are not dissimilar to curtains seen in the back of some paintings done by a Flemish painter called Joris van Stretten, who we know from documentary sources was very chummy with Hilliard whilst Hilliard was living in France. Joris was also working in Paris at the time. And in fact, they seemed to have lived together at one stage when Hilliard was a bit hard up for cash. So it's entirely possible, I think, that Joris painted the background. So we've got those two images as, as what you might think of as touchstones. I think going forward, anyone who's got a large scale oil painting and wondering if it might have a link to Hilliard will want to compare their painting with the Woodston portraits. But the Phoenix and Pelican uh, portraits of Queen Elizabeth, which of course are in the National Portrait Gallery and the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, also I think have a claim to have been produced in Hilliard's workshop, not necessarily painted by Hilliard himself. Both of those paintings have evidence of multiple hands at work, which is what often happened. 
with big workshops in this period. And so it's very difficult to say to what extent Hilliard might have personally wielded the paintbrush on either the Phoenix or the Pelican. But again, the face that we see for the Queen is clearly this same pattern that had been devised for use in miniature in the early 1570s and then has been adapted to use in great. And interestingly enough, the jewels in her costume um, in the Phoenix, costumes in the Phoenix and Pelican portraits show evidence of knowledge of certain techniques that Hilliard had developed for use in miniature. One of the distinctive things about Hilliard's miniatures um, that made them so appealing was that as a goldsmith, he was no doubt particularly attuned to the depiction of the jewels. And he developed a lot of special techniques that were designed to make the jewels look more realistic and to look more lustrous and to shimmer more in the light. And he seems to have applied, or someone in his workshop has applied those techniques to the depiction of the jewels in the Phoenix and the Pelican and adapted the techniques for use in oils. So it's a really, really interesting um, area. And I think it's entirely possible that in years to come, now that we have this, you know, these touchstone images, that there will be new attributions that will be made and new discoveries in relation to Hilliard's work in oils in great. So that's that's a fascinating area to keep an eye on, I think, in years to come. Yeah, that's so exciting. And I think it's really interesting to hear about those collaborations too, because perhaps, you know, some people listening might not be aware that artists did work together on, on portraits at the time and the workshop idea, lots of people contributing is really interesting too, isn't it? It is. And I mean, it, it makes you start to question what does it mean to, you know, to say something is by Hilliard? Is it, you know, how much of it did he actually have to paint for you to be willing to say it's a Hilliard? Or is it enough that it simply came out of his workshop and he supervised it and perhaps devised the overall scheme without necessarily painting a huge amount of it? So yes, it's, it, it's very, very interesting, I think. It makes you wonder if there's some other poor artist that was doing most of the work and then <laughs> Hilliard comes out with all the fame. Absolutely. Now, on the 25th of September, 1576, a newly married Hilliard set sail for France. So I'm just wondering, did this come about because of his connection to Catherine de' Medici that you were talking about before? And just maybe just tell us a little bit about this chapter in his life, like how he spent his time, what he was doing there. That would be great. Sure. This is a very exciting chapter in Hilliard's life, so much so that even though he was only in France for two years and a bit, as you obviously know, I devoted an entire chapter of the book to this period, um, even though all the other chapters cover 10 years or more. But there was just so much that happened in this two-year period, and it, it just seemed so important to me that I felt it really needed its own chapter in the book. And the reason that it's so important is that Hilliard really came back from France completely transformed in terms of his view of painting and the status of the painter. France was quicker than England to embrace the Italian Renaissance view of painting as a learned liberal art of the painter as someone fit for the company of courtiers and kings. And we know that Hilliard, whilst in France, became chummy with a lot of French painters, poets, intellectuals, and he clearly seems to have absorbed these ideas. No doubt the seeds of the treatise he would later write on miniature painting, which mounts a defense of the painter as a gentleman and the learned practitioner of a liberal art. No doubt the seeds of all that were painted during this time in France. And it's also in France that Hilliard paints 
his self-portrait, which interestingly does not show him with a paintbrush or any of the tools of his trade. He looks every inch, uh, the gentleman actually is slightly more than a gentleman. He looks like a bit like the Earl of Leicester. In the book, I've juxtaposed Hilliard's self-portrait with an exactly contemporaneous portrait of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and, and they almost, you know, looked like twins. So Hilliard clearly... Um, came back from France with an inflated sense of, of the importance of his calling. Um, so how did all this come about? As you mentioned, he set sail for France in the autumn of 1576. He was off to take up a temporary appointment as court painter to the Duke of Anjou, who was the younger brother of Henri Trois, King of France, um, and thus the son of Catherine de' Medici. It's entirely possible that the fact that Hilliard had wowed Catherine de' Medici a few years earlier with his miniatures had some bearing on Anjou's willingness to take on Hilliard as temporary court painter. That being said, I've no doubt that Elizabeth and Dudley were doing all they could to pull strings to try to make this happen. Elizabeth was at the time engaged in on-again, off-again marriage negotiations with Anjou. And as you no doubt know, she of course famously had said that she would never marry anyone whose face she had not seen. And at this stage, she had never met Anjou in person. She, she later would, but of course at this stage, she didn't know that would happen. So she was desperately keen to get hold of an accurate painted portrait of him. And though the French had been sending portraits to her, she was a bit skeptical about <laughs> the accuracy. Anjou, it was well known at all the courts of Europe had been very badly disfigured by smallpox as a child. And she was concerned about just how bad the smallpox had been. And all the portraits coming out of France showed a very handsome young man. And yet the rumor mill was full of stories that he wasn't nearly so um, handsome in the flesh. So she was very keen to find out what he actually looked like. She was also keen for political intelligence from France. Anjou, one moment seemed to be very pro-Protestant, the next minute seemed pro-Catholic. No one could really figure out where his loyalties lay. And I think that Elizabeth and Dudley hoped that if Hilliard could get a placement in Anjou's household, that perhaps he could do a bit of intelligence work, a bit of spying for them. He had excellent French because of the time he had spent in Geneva as a child, and his Protestant credentials were beyond reproach, so that was a bonus as well. And of course, in many ways, being a miniature painter would have provided excellent cover because it required you to spend a lot of time up close and personal observing whoever it was that you were portraying. So I think that was probably the hope from Elizabeth and Dudley's point of view. Anjou no doubt had his own agenda in that he was probably hoping to extract intelligence about the English court from Hilliard. And no doubt, whereas Elizabeth wanted a very accurate portrait of Anjou, Anjou no doubt wanted someone to create flattering, possibly not terribly accurate portraits. So a very complicated web of competing agendas. Hilliard, for his part, had his own reasons for wanting to go to France. He later revealed that he had two main purposes, one being um, to acquire knowledge, 
by which I presume he meant that he wanted to see the fabled Valois art collections and just soak up as much art and as many new ideas about art as he could. He certainly did, did achieve that goal. And his second reason for wanting to go to France was, in his own words, to get a piece of money of the lords and ladies at the French court. Hilliard's finances were always a bit precarious, but they were in a particularly bad way in 1576, at the time that this opportunity arose. He was, in fact, being sued by various creditors, and various pieces of evidence suggest that Hilliard saw going to France as a chance to buy himself some time away from the reach of the English courts, and perhaps he hoped that he could somehow earn enough money in France to pay off his creditors in England. So a very complicated set of circumstances, which quickly became even more complicated because a chance shortly after Hilliard arrived in France, what had been a very fragile peace, but a peace nonetheless between Protestants and Catholics in France unraveled, and Henri Trois, the king, effectively declared war on the Huguenots, the French Protestants, which made France in general and Paris in particular, which is where Hilliard spent most of his time, a very, very dangerous place for anyone who was known to be a Protestant. Yet somehow, Hilliard managed to curry favour at the very highest levels. He even managed to portray Henri Trois in an extraordinary, just gorgeous miniature, which only just came to light a few years ago. And not for the first time, Hilliard, in, in very difficult circumstances, somehow landed on his feet. Um, I mean, I think it took its toll. It's very clear from various writings of Hilliard's correspondence and the treatise on miniature painting that he later wrote, which includes various autobiographical passages. It, it seems pretty clear to me that he suffered from what we would probably today call depression, quite a lot of the time that he was in France, um, but not surprising. It was clearly a, a very, very stressful place to be. The letters of Amos Paul at the French ambassador are filled with just horrific descriptions of violence um, and bloodshed on a daily level. And Paul describes a, a really quite claustrophobic, paranoid world in which no one could be trusted. One didn't know who was a spy, who was a double agent, who was a triple agent. It was all just very, very difficult. Hilliard when he set off, I think probably thought he was only going for a few months. In the end, he was there for over two years. His wife, he had just got married shortly before he set sail for France, and his wife certainly joined him at some point while he was there. Whether she set sail with him in the autumn of 1576, we don't know, but certainly she met up with him at some point. Their first child was conceived in France. She ended up leaving France before Nicholas, however, I think in part because it just became too dangerous. So again, adding to the stress and perhaps the sense of melancholy that Hilliard felt must have been this period of separation from his wife and new baby, she went back to England and we know that their first child was actually baptised in London while Hilliard was still in France. So a difficult situation all round, but one that left this indelible mark on Hilliard, both in terms of his sense of his calling and of the importance of painting and the painter, but also he clearly absorbed a lot of ideas about French art. He clearly saw a lot of works by Francois Clouet, who had been the leading French painter for decades. Clouet actually died shortly before Hilliard arrived, but Hilliard would have seen lots of examples of Clouet's work. And much of the work that Hilliard produced on his return to England shows very clearly the influence of Clouet and of art that he must have seen whilst in France. 
I can absolutely see why you devoted an entire chapter to that period. There is so much there, isn't there? And it's so revealing on so many different levels. And I just, you know, I could feel that tension as you were talking. He's trying to keep all these different people happy and, and it must have been yeah. quite arduous for him. And, and, and at yeah. the same time, all that learning and all that new information. Yes, I mean, I think in many ways it may have been a bit like his episode as a child in Marian Exile, which we talked about last time, in a sense of extreme highs and extreme lows. So on the one hand, all these incredible opportunities to see art that he never would have been able to see in England and meeting lots of interesting, important people. But at the same time, day-to-day life being filled with danger and violence, and you never quite know, am I still going to be alive this time tomorrow? So of very, very strange, strange sort of existence, I think. Absolutely. And the fact that he was able to stay on the, the good side of the king is is interesting too, isn't it? It's quite revealing about his character. And he sounds, I said it in the last episode, he sounds like such an interesting person. And I had a little giggle when you talked about um his portrait being similar to Dudley's portrait. Can you imagine being in a room with Nicholas Elliott and Robert Dudley? <laughs> It would it would be the dream dinner party, fantasy dinner party, wouldn't it? Um, it would be fascinating. But I think Hilliard must have been very, very charismatic when he wanted to be. But certainly the ease with which he seems to have moved in courtly circles, both in England and in France, the ease with which he seems to have infiltrated the French intellectual elite. Pierre de Ronsard, the great poet, spoke highly of Hilliard. Blaise de Visionnaire, the great French aesthetician, also was a great admirer of Hilliard. So he just seems to have seamlessly blended in and got on very well in the these potentially quite intimidating environments which for Hilliard do not seem to have been intimidating. I mean, I think possibly where Hilliard was slightly less charming was, you know, just hanging out with his fellow goldsmiths in England. One gets the sense that, um, well, if Hilliard ever deigned to go to the pub with them on a, on a, on a Friday evening, you know, that he, he wasn't really one of the boys. It, it, one does get the sense that he was a real name dropper and was yeah. forever sort of bragging about his court connections and all of the important people he was hobnobbing with in ways that often robbed his fellow goldsmiths the wrong way. Um, and no doubt the fact that Hilliard was forever being granted special privileges by the Goldsmiths Guild perhaps also contributed to certain feelings of resentment amongst uh, his fellow goldsmiths in London. And now when he returns, so he returns to England, as you mentioned, in late 1578. So what prompted that? Was it the situation, the worsening situation in, in France or was there another reason? Well, I think the immediate catalyst was the fact that Hilliard in November 1578 ran into some difficulties with the Paris Guild of Goldsmiths. He had, uh, in addition to painting lots of portraits and being part of the Duke of Anjou's household, he had also found time to set up his own goldsmith's atelier in Paris. And as such, Hilliard would have been subject to quite restrictive rules and regulations set up by the the Paris Guild with a view towards ensuring that foreign-born goldsmiths would not pose too much of a threat to the livelihoods of native-born French goldsmiths. We don't know from the surviving documentation what it was that the Paris Guild thought Hilliard had done wrong. And obviously we don't know if in fact, whatever it was, if Hilliard had done it or not. But knowing Hilliard, I suspect he probably (laughs) did. 
rules because uh, one of the themes that emerged very, very, very consistently in all the documentary sources spanning Hilliard's entire career is that he just didn't feel that it was necessary for him to follow rules that he found troublesome. He clearly felt he had exceptional talent and a, a, a sort of calling that rendered him exempt from these tiresome rules that mere mortals had to uh, adhere to. So I suspect he probably had done something slightly naughty. In any case, he was ordered to appear in front of what was effectively the goldsmith's court, the sort of tribunal by which the Paris Guild of Goldsmiths dealt with these sorts of uh, infractions. But instead of appearing before the tribunal, Hilliard just made a run for it and <laughs> headed back to England, where unfortunately the financial problems that he had uh, fled in 1576 had not gone away. Uh, in spite of the fact that he worked flat out during his time in Paris, he doesn't seem to have managed to save money to pay off his creditors in England because he very soon found himself borrowing money from his father-in-law to deal with these mounting debts. And this would become a recurrent theme throughout Hilliard's life. In spite of the fact that he always was working flat out, he never lacked for commissions. He always had incredibly high-ranking, high-profile patrons he just never seems to have been able to amass any capital and was forever turning to friends and family to borrow money. Just clearly was not, not very good with money. I think he developed very expensive tastes once he got a look behind closed doors or doors that normally would have been closed to someone like him and had seen how the other half lived. He was very keen to dress like a gentleman to live the life of a gentleman. So I think pretty much any money he earned was very quickly spent. He also had a fatal weakness for get-rich-quick schemes. So there was no investment too weird or improbable for Hilliard. He was he was very quick to invest in anything that he thought would double his money in a hurry. And quite often these schemes blew up in his face. So um, a very precarious existence. And in terms of um, financial burdens, of course, London then as now an expensive place to live. And over the course of the late 1570s and throughout the 1580s, he and his wife Alice had several children, so a lot of mouths to feed. They had eight children, seven of whom lived into adulthood. So um, a lot of a lot of outgoings and um, a lot of pressure to earn. But Hilliard, in spite of his best efforts, was really never quite able to keep his wife, who incidentally was the daughter of Robert Brandon, his old um, master, uh, never quite able to keep his wife in the style to which she had been accustomed growing up in um, her father's household, her father having been one of the, the richest men in the city of London. Goodness, I'm just, I just keep picturing the movie as you're talking. This sounds fantastic. We need one. <laughs> Nicholas well, Hilliard. Yeah. Hilliard. <laughs> It's a bonus when, you know, someone not only produced great art, but had um, an exciting life. I remember when first talking to my editor about this book and she, and, um, and she said, well, okay, we know the artist is wonderful, but was he an interesting person? She said, because if he was just one of these boring people who got on with everyone, I'm not sure anyone will want to read about that and I said no he, he was always falling out with people and it's it's true it does um, make for much more um, a much more interesting book and I, I think it's so fascinating as well the contrast between the incredibly precise controlled miniatures and then 
this personal life that was pure chaos at all times and this extraordinary contrast between Hilliard's ability clearly when it came to his work to be an absolute perfectionist and we know from his treatise that he was um, an absolute stickler for cleanliness in the workshop because you couldn't have any lint any dust any any dandruff he's very worked up about dandruff that might fall onto the wet paint and spoil your miniature and yet when pictures in the next room, just unpaid bills piling up and <laughs> threatening to, you know, bury him alive. It's some, um, uh, you know, a, an amazing contrast. So he returns and he bases himself in, in London again, I believe, yes. with his wife and family. And obviously he's he starts working again. He's got bills to pay. What's What are some of those pieces he's producing after his return from France? Well, once again, he worked in an incredible range of media. I mean, we, we of course think about him mainly in terms of miniatures and that was the big thing he was known for, but he was again producing paintings in great. We know he also did miscellaneous decorative painting and miscellaneous heraldic painting. So for example, documentary evidence suggests that he or members of his workshop were well known as painters of tombs. They also seem to have been well known as suppliers of heraldic painting for noble funerals. And of course, nothing really survives of that type of heraldic painting. But as you probably know, noble and aristocratic funerals in this period involved elaborate processions with those processing carrying canvas banners on which had been painted coats of arms and other heraldic achievements. And there was a lot of money to be made from this. Of course, the banners tend not to survive because, you know, these were carried aloft in all sorts of weather. But anyway, it would appear from documentary sources that the Hilliard workshop was, you know, one of the go-to workshops for this sort of heraldic funeral painting. Hilliard also did designs for medals. He designed the second great seal of the realm. He was doing manuscript illumination. He was continuing to supply title page uh, designs to printers and booksellers for engraving or, or wood cutting. So he really, once again, was doing anything that would generate income. If people were willing to pay, he was basically willing to do it or get someone in his workshop to do it. He enjoyed patronage from a wide range of individuals. He did not at this stage have any sort of official title from the Queen. He wouldn't until the very end of the reign get the official title of uh, Queen's Limna. But he was the de facto unofficial miniature painter and manuscript illuminator for Elizabeth I and recognised as such by everyone at this date. However, whereas at the very beginning of his career in the early 1570s, Whenever he painted Elizabeth in miniature, it was a one-off bespoke production, which of course would have been time consuming both for him and for her. By this stage, there was such demand for Hilliard miniatures of the Queen. Um, she was regularly sending them to other rulers, but also handing them out to courtiers as rewards for loyal service. There was such demand that it was no longer feasible for every miniature to be a one-off bespoke production. So Hilliard devised a mask in the early 1580s, which for convenience, I've dubbed the mask of queenship. And Elizabeth no doubt sat for the original template. But then once that had been created, Hilliard could just, whenever she needed a miniature to give to someone else. He could just whip up a new one. He always changed the clothes and the jewelry so that if recipients compared notes, 
everyone would feel they had something different and you know hopefully no one would feel hard done by but it was just a much easier more efficient way to go about doing things that facial template the mask of queenship then got updated in the early 1590s with something that again is known by art historians just for convenience as the mask of youth because it shows um an almost botox um <laughs> as no, it was um, by that stage quite wrinkly and losing her hair and her teeth. But you would never guess that from the, the Mask of Youth, which is very flattering indeed. So Hilliard is producing all of these images of the Queen in a variety of media, uh, in uh, miniatures, but he's also, of course, doing images of her in, in medals, in the Second Great Seal of the Realm, of course, is Elizabeth enthroned. You've also got various manuscript illuminations. Often he would adapt either the mask of queenship or in due course the mask of youth for these other representations of Elizabeth. But then he was simultaneously undertaking work for all sorts of aristocratic clients. Um, and then with the passage of time, there was a growing demand from, as I mentioned earlier, self-made men in the city. A lot of merchants wanted to commission miniatures from Hilliard. Interestingly, the um, what we think of as the classic Hilliard, so a miniature depicting the sitter in three-quarter face against a blue background with a gold inscription giving the age of the sitter and the date of execution of the, of the miniature. This is what he first made his name with in the early 1570s, and he always produced examples of this throughout his career. Many more well-born sitters who are the sort of individuals who might have commissioned two or three miniatures from Hilliard over the course of their lives. Once you had one of the classic Hilliard, you perhaps didn't need more. So the more aristocratic sitters were always looking for new takes on the miniature and Hilliard was constantly innovating and changing up the backgrounds. So for example, in the 1590s, he introduces Ripley velvet curtains as a backdrop. But interestingly, the sort of self-made sitters who were likely to only commission one portrait in the course of their entire lives always went for the classic Hilliard. They always wanted the blue background with the gold inscription. And, you know, you sort of picture them coming in and looking at samples in Hilliard's workshop and thinking, if I'm only going to do this once I want I want the classic the one that anyone seeing it will know that's a Hilliard that's how Queen Elizabeth was first portrayed by him in the 1570s but Hilliard I mean I think one of the secrets to his longevity was that he was very shrewd about knowing how to cater to the needs of these different markets he was continuously adapting and changing and very willing in consultation we must presume with his clients to to try new things and so you do get some interesting experimentation and Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But I think it's interesting because so many artists, I think, particularly as they get older, become less willing to try new things. But that was never the case with Hilliard. He was innovating up to the end and always very conscious of the need to um, adapt and change. And no doubt that's why he remained in demand you know, for the better part of 50 years, really, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times the treatise that he wrote. Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this treatise and also maybe just some of the techniques and working practices that he used? I think this, the, the sort of nitty gritty of, of the work is always interesting to hear about. Yes, absolutely. Well, Hilliard liked to paint from the life. This was not always possible. And certainly with someone like Queen Elizabeth, who Hilliard had obviously had many opportunities early on to portray from the life. As time went on, he 
he knew her image so well that he didn't necessarily need to um, portray her from the life. But in the main, he, he liked to have an initial consultation with the sitter to discuss the requirements for the commission and then to have three separate sittings, each lasting at least two hours, but possibly as long as six hours, depending on the patience of the sitter. Hilliard, as far as we know, did not do preliminary drawings, but worked directly on the vellum. And perhaps it's worth just pausing to mention the materials that we're talking about. So the surface for miniatures, as painted by Hilliard, would be calfskin or vellum, which had been specially treated and stretched to make it um, really incredibly thin, like onion skin paper, sort of thin. It then had to be affixed to a slightly stiffer surface, typically an ordinary playing card, so that you would have a work surface that you could actually work on. So the vellum was affixed to a playing card using a bit of flour and water to create a sort of paste. But then you needed a smooth join. You couldn't have a lumpy bit in the middle. So Hilliard would take a canine tooth and burnish that <laughs> seam until it was um, completely smooth. Paintbrush was made of squirrel hairs set in um, a bird quill and mounted on a wooden stick. And of course, Hilliard is doing all of this long before the invention of electricity. So <laughs> a good supply of natural light was key. One gets the impression from various documentary sources that often he didn't do a huge amount of work, or at least not in the realm of miniature painting in the winter months. And if you've ever spent any time in England in sort of January, February, you will know that it can be very, very dark and that there just isn't much decent sunlight at that time of year. And so you can imagine trying to work on such a small surface and paint something incredibly detailed would be very difficult in, in January in England. So one slightly senses that he tried to um, you know make the most of the summer months when you have these very long, ideally sunny days. Elizabeth, as we discussed earlier, when she first sat to Hilliard, did so in a garden at Hampton Court, no doubt on a, on a sunny day. That seems to have been the Queen's idea, and Hilliard wouldn't have been in a position to say no if that's what she wanted to do. I don't think that in the main, sitting outside would have been what Hilliard wanted to do. His treatise, which describe how one is to keep one's workshop, is almost obsessive on the topic of cleanliness, the need to have to eliminate all potential sources of dust and anything that might spoil the work in progress. He even advises being very careful about speaking over the miniature for fear of spittle landing on, on the work in progress. So I can't see Hilliard being very relaxed about working outdoors. I think, you know, if any sort of breeze that brought a leaf uh, <laughs> uh, sort of drifting into his, uh, into his workspace, I think would have been caused for alarm. Um, Hilliard would have travelled to his royal and aristocratic sitters. He certainly wasn't expecting the Queen to come to him, um, or Robert Dudley for that matter. But I think with the, the city men and women that he portrayed, they probably would have come to Hilliard. His workshop from the 15, late 1570s until almost the end of his life was based on Gutter Lane, which was located just off Cheapside, which was the thoroughfare in the city and the most prestigious address for a goldsmith shop. So a lot of 
city people would have been passing Gutter Lane anyway in the course of their daily life and I think would have would have simply popped in. I mean, it was standard in this period for the ground floor of Goldsmith's premises to be a combination of shop and workshop and then for living quarters to be above. So, so yes, I think the, the more middle class, for lack of a better term, sitters would have just popped in and had their appointments and their sittings um, on Gutter Lane. But for the, the slightly grander patrons, Hilliard would have gone to them. There was a travelling sort of portable paint box that Hilliard probably, as we know, other miniature painters of the era did, which doubled as a suitcase to carry all your bits and bobs and tools, but then could be opened up to become a sort of desk with an easel to give yourself a work surface once you reach your destination. So one slightly envisions Hilliard setting off for the royal palaces, perhaps with an apprentice in tow carrying the heavy um, suitcase with all the uh, painting equipment in it. Such wonderful detail. I absolutely love all of that. Now, given the Earl of Leicester's prominent role in terms of patronage with Clarissa's life, how did his debts affect things? Well, I think, yes, it must have been a real shock to the system. Dudley died in, um, in 1588, shortly after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. He was taken ill very suddenly and died very quickly. So it was very much out of the blue. So I think it would have come as a big shock to Hilliard and no doubt was a, a source of concern. He had relied so heavily upon Dudley for nearly 20 years at this point. Hilliard, however, was very quickly taken up by... Dudley's stepson and political heir, Robert Deverick, second Earl of Essex. And so from the time of Dudley's death in 1588 until the mid-1590s, Hilliard counted Essex as his chief patron. And Essex, of course, at this time had also assumed Dudley's old role as favourite to the Queen. However, in about 1596, there was some sort of rupture between Essex and Hilliard, and it, it's not entirely clear what happened, but Essex seems to have jettisoned Hilliard at this point, um, possibly as part of a larger rebranding, so to speak, of his image. For various reasons, Essex in the mid-1590s decided it was no longer advantageous to portray himself in the mould of Dudley and wanted to downplay all his links to Dudley. And perhaps he saw getting rid of Hilliard, who had been Dudley's chief image maker, and up till that point, his own chief image maker, as a, a good way of doing that. Hilliard, however, um, very quickly found a new chief patron in Essex's great political rival, Robert Cecil, the son of Lord Burley. And so from the mid-1590s until Robert Cecil's death in 1612, Hilliard counted Robert Cecil as his chief patron. The nature of that relationship was rather different to the relationships that Hilliard had had with either Essex or Dudley. Both Essex and Leicester were absolutely obsessed with portraiture, obsessed with their own image, possibly slightly vain um, individuals. <laughs> say. Robert Cecil was a bit more down-to-earth, not obsessed with portraiture in the same way. He was very conscious about the fact that he had a hunchback, so slightly less keen to be portrayed. So far as we know, he only commissioned one miniature from Hilliard, probably in about 1601. It doesn't survive. But in general, uh, Robert Cecil wasn't, just wasn't as interested in portraiture. We don't find evidence of him commissioning images of 
family members, for example, in quite the same way that both Dudley and Essex were constantly commissioning images of everyone they were related to, basically. For Robert Cecil, supporting Hilliard seems to have been something that he viewed as part and parcel of supporting the Elizabethan regime and then in due course the Jacobean regime because of course Hilliard was such an important part of royal image making and had been the most influential purveyor of Elizabeth I's image and would go on to become the most influential purveyor I would argue of James's image and it was for those reasons I think rather than personal interest in his own image making that Robert Cecil took Hilliard under his wing. So presumably, Elizabeth, there were other artists around at the time um, and at court. So who were his major rivals? Well, interestingly enough, Hilliard really only ever had one real rival, and that was Isaac Oliver, who in the 1580s had been one of Hilliard's pupils. Over the course of the 1590s, Oliver came into his own, opened his own workshop, and emerged as Hilliard's only real competition at court. And it's extraordinary to think that up until that point, so for a good 20 years, Hilliard really had no competitors in the field of miniature painting in England. When Essex, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, jettisoned Hilliard in the mid-1590s as part of an image makeover and a desire to kind of rebrand himself, it was Oliver that he turned to at that point for a new look in miniature. The relationship between Hilliard and Oliver is often characterized as antagonistic, combative, very competitive. I'm not convinced it was actually. In researching my book, it seemed to me that there was always more than enough work to go around for both of them. And there seemed to me to be very few instances when they were actually pitted against one another competing for the same jobs. I suspect that what actually happened is that each carved out a distinct niche and catered to a slightly different clientele. So from the mid-1590s onwards, it seems to me that Hilliard was largely working for individuals who wanted something fairly traditional, Oliver working for individuals who wanted something slightly trendier, for lack of a better term. So for example, James I, when he came to the throne in 1603, chose Hilliard to be his image maker in Little. James, of course, had political reasons for wanting to emphasise continuity with the previous reign. And what better way to do that than by carrying on with Hilliard, who had been Elizabeth's chief image maker in Little. Anna of Denmark, James's consort, chose Oliver as her image maker in Little. And she had reasons of her own for wanting to distance herself from the previous reign. She, there wasn't a lot of love lost between Anna of Denmark and Elizabeth I. And so I think for political reasons, as well as perhaps aesthetic reasons, I think Anna of Denmark was also just more interested in continental aesthetics and Oliver was a slightly more, sort of slightly more au fait with the latest continental trends than Hilliard was at this stage. But anyway, the point is, I think that each carved out a separate sphere, and I'm not sure that there were that many occasions when Hilliard and Oliver went head to head competing for commissions. And following Elizabeth's death in 1603, was it a smooth transition for Hilliard? Did he just continue working at court or was there any, any moment there where he was sidelined I suppose. Well this is a really interesting question and something that I really enjoyed investigating in in researching and writing the book. Previous biographies of Hilliard 
have tended to focus on his experiences at the court of Elizabeth and the final years of his life at the court of James I have, have normally been treated almost as an apologue. And so I was really keen to see if it was possible to unpick that a bit. And what became clear to me from the documentary sources is that it was a remarkably seamless transfer from Elizabeth to James, but very much facilitated by Robert Cecil, who seems to have really gone to bat for Hilliard and ensured that James would choose Hilliard and that Hilliard would continue to be on the royal payroll as Royal Limna. And in fact, Hilliard was producing images of James. I was able to pinpoint the date of his first miniatures of James, and these were being produced even before the coronation. So basically, the minute that James reached England from Scotland, Hilliard was there to start uh, taking his likeness. So Hilliard was very fortunate in having Robert Cecil as his patron at this point, because I'm not sure that that would have happened without Cecil's intervention. But James relied very heavily on Cecil for all sorts of advice about the transition. And the miniatures that Hilliard created of James very shrewdly play up the English angle. James was very concerned about being accepted south of the border. And so the early miniatures all show, show James with the garter uh, around his neck um, and just lots of emblems of Englishness. And so as had been the case at Elizabeth's court, Hilliard produced images of James and indeed of James's children uh, in miniature, but he also produced using the same facial templates he had created for James in miniature. He sort of spun those templates off into manuscript illumination, seals, medals, a wide range of media. And again, was still, of course, producing imagery for other clients, uh, you know, anyone off the street who could come in and, and pay the fees, really. And working as well with booksellers and printers, producing title pages. So up until the end, and Hilliard is now, you know, in his 60s, really working flat out, though increasingly by this stage in partnership with his son, Lawrence, who I think was a rather reluctant limna, but was sort of arm twisted into uh, to joining the, the family business, so to speak. Yeah, and I'm still amazed by, you know, just the longevity of his career, his his high demand, all this incredible work, and that he still had all those financial difficulties, I think it's just kind of mind boggling. And I think, as you mentioned, partly due to his personality, perhaps, and his striving for greater, greater heights, I guess, and wanting to match his patrons in, in magnificence, possibly. But in terms of Isaac Oliver, did he experience similar things? Was it something of the time? Or was this quite particular to Hilliard himself? Well, you know, that's such a good question because Oliver Oliver doesn't seem to have got into any financial difficulties. Or if he did, the, no paper trail has been left behind that would, would indicate that. Oliver seems to have got along with everybody. Hilliard was forever suing or being sued and just forever following out with people, typically because he borrowed money from them and then refused to repay it. And often then, this is not a, a very attractive character trait, often denied that he had ever borrowed the money in the first place. When backed into a corner, Hilliard could be really quite difficult and had a, had a fairly flexible relationship to the truth, I think. But yes, it's interesting. Oliver just seems to have had a very calm life. Um, I should think Oliver was probably a much nicer person to do business with. Possibly the, the reason no one has written a biography of Oliver, or not at least a freestanding one, is I'm, I'm not sure how exciting he would be 
<laughs> to read about because you don't have these highs and lows. Oliver was a brilliant artist, produced beautiful images and clearly seems a, a pretty nice person and pretty honest and paid his bills on time. But you don't have these incredible highs and lows and huge dramas that just, mm. you know, Every day seems to have brought a new drama with with Hilliard. Never, never a dull moment uh, in the Hilliard household, I think. Tell us about the final years and the death of this quite intriguing and remarkable artist. Well, the final years are, are a bit sad, actually, on a personal level. I mean, the work never seems to have dried up. So he, or at least his workshop, was producing work in all media right up until the end. But from about 1611, 1612, so the last seven or eight years of Hilliard's life, really one loss after another. His wife, Alice, seems to have died in about 1611, followed in 1612 by Robert Cecil dying. And this really seems to have been a double whammy from which Hilliard never quite recovered. I suspect that his wife, Alice, had whilst alive played some role in managing the household finances and Robert Cecil we know on a regular basis had bailed Hilliard out there were a few occasions when Hilliard nearly ended up in debtor's prison and Robert Cecil rode to the rescue at the 11th hour and provided the necessary funds to prevent that from happening following the deaths in quick succession of these two individuals Hilliard's finances just seemed to have gone into freefall he didn't find another aristocratic patron to take Sissel's place. He did not, it seems, remarry. This was an interesting discovery that I made working on the book. It had always been assumed for various reasons that Hilliard had remarried, albeit his second wife's identity had always remained mysterious. But that turns out, I think, to be a bit of a red herring. And in fact, I don't think in fact, he ever remarried. And his finances basically sank into irreversible decline. In 1613, he ended up having to relinquish the lease on his workshop on Gutter Lane that he had held for about 35 years. We don't actually know where he ended up living and working for those last few years. He ended up in debtor's prison for a brief spell um, about a year before he died. So he would have been about 70 at that point. And yes, made his will on Christmas Eve 1618. It was clearly very ill by that stage. The original version of the will, which came to light just as my book was going to press, is signed or Hilliard attempted to sign it. And it's it's very moving because he was clearly so weak at this point that he could barely control the pen. And so he has tried to sign an NH monogram, not unlike the NH monogram seen on his self-portrait, but it's barely legible. But 71, as he was, or 72, 73, very old age at, at, at this time. And he had outlived not just his wife and all of his chief patrons, but several of his pupils. Uh, Isaac Oliver predeceased him. Certainly most of his contemporaries predeceased him. So he really, though in many ways it was a sad end and a one sense is possibly slightly a lonely end. He had been a terrific survivor. I mean, there were so many extraordinary events that he lived through and somehow rose above, um, you know, going back to all the dramas he had in Paris um, in the 1570s, where there were so many uh, dangerous moments when he might well have lost his life and didn't. So really, really an extraordinary life and an extraordinary journey from relative obscurity in the provinces in Exeter to the heart of the English court, the heart of the French court, um, an eyewitness to so many extraordinary 
historical moments and and of course the images he, he has left behind which are for so many of the figures portrayed really the defining images of those larger than life historical figures you know when we think of Raleigh or we think of Drake it's I think often you know the Hilliard image that that comes to mind so an amazing legacy really. What an extraordinary life, an extraordinary career. And I'm just thinking how interesting it is that he's almost forever young because we picture the self-portrait of that vibrant young man. And it's hard to reconcile that with the lonely, sick, you know, 70 odd person. Like that's that's quite interesting, isn't it? It is, yes, yes. That self-portrait is um is a powerful image. And of course, is the image on the front cover of my book on the dust jacket. Um, as the person who designed the dust jacket said to me, it never hurts to put a handsome man on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's true he it, it's it's a it's a gorgeous image and and he looks so pleased with himself and and what I think is so exciting about that image is I think it does really capture him at this pivotal moment in his life this this transition in, in midway through his two years at the French court when he suddenly thinks actually to be a painter is a really exalted calling and is even if you're not born a gentleman to be called to be a painter is somehow a form of gentility and the coolness of of his gaze the sort of haughty way in which he regards the viewer it's it's really very very extraordinary and I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed not only your book but our two-part discussion it's it's been absolutely intriguing and your in-depth observations and clearly the research you've done has just been amazing so I can't thank you enough for joining us here on Talking Tudors and I hope everyone goes and buys your book. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.